lady named Sheila, as a child growing up in Cameroon, got hooked on kaolin. Now, it's not what you're thinking. It's not a drug. It's actually dirt. She got hooked on eating dirt, um, which you may think, as I did when I read this story, is strange, but it's actually not that uncommon. Uh, A lot of people eat dirt, and not always for reasons that you might think. I think of eating dirt. I think of what my kids probably do in the backyard uh, when they're playing, and someone dare, one of them dares the other one to eat a mouthful of dirt, which we all probably did growing up, right, if you had brothers and sisters. Uh, but this is something that's relatively common, at least more common than I thought it was. It's called geophagy, and it has, it's very popular. I mean, you can see it in, in countries like Argent, uh, Argentina, Iran, and Namibia, but it's very popular um, in the tropics. Um, there are two groups that primarily do children, as I just mentioned, which is not surprising. And uh, not making any judgment here, but uh, pregnant women are another group that that does it. I I would think that would be a strange craving, but uh, nonetheless, uh, those are are two two high percentage groups that that participate in this, relatively speaking. Uh, And there are a lot of different reasons why they do this. There are some, you know, it is uh, an addiction. You know, we think uh, along the lines of, if you've seen those specials of people eating strange things like bleach and glass, have you ever seen anything? Uh, maybe I'm the only one who watches those strange TV shows. But, um, but, you know, there are those people that do that, and that's just because it's a strange addiction that they have. Uh, but in some areas like the tropics, they actually believe you can walk into an outdoor market and buy dirt mixed with like cracked pepper. I mean, they, they believe it has medicinal purposes, uh, that, it, that it soothes your digestive tract, that there's natural nutrients in the, the dirt that helps uh, the, the clay will coat your stomach and there are nutrients that help uh, in terms of health. Uh, but none of those things have actually been proven. Uh, they still do it, though. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of complications that come from eating dirt. Uh, There are things, not only nutrients in the soil, but there are living things in the soil that are not good for you. Um, There are toxins in the soil that can harm you, and many believe that while some eat it to soothe your stomach, it actually does the opposite, which I would guess would be the case. It, would, it actually messes up your digestive tract. So there are dangers. And this story, I'm looking at this, and I've had it, for, it's a few years old, uh, but it intrigues me because there's a conclusion in the story. There's a statement that's made by the person writing the, the article that is so very true. Just because I hunger for something doesn't mean it's good for me. Uh, you know, you may get to where you enjoy eating dirt. I don't know why you would, but just because you're hungry for it doesn't mean it's good. And that's true of a lot of foods, right? I mean, there are a lot of things. Hey, we were on vacation this week, and I think sometimes all we do on vacation is eat. And there are some things that probably aren't very good for me that I ate. Um, just because something's that you hunger for something doesn't mean it's good for you. Boy, that's a spiritual lesson too, isn't it? Um, In my spiritual life, just because I'm hungry for something, just because I want something doesn't mean it's good. So that begs the question for all of us. What are we hungry for? What are you hungry for this morning? I know it's getting on about lunchtime, but not food. Spiritually, in your life, what do you crave? What do you go after? What consumes your life? Because there are some things that we should be hungry for. As a matter of fact, Jesus says... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
our next beatitude that we're looking at today. We're in our series on the beatitudes, and we have learned that the beatitudes show us the characteristics of a true follower of Christ, the inner qualities of a disciple of Christ. And Jesus says in verse 6 of Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I've been made aware of my sin. I've mourned over my sin. I've repented of my sin. I've humbled myself before God. And now he has changed me, and I begin to hunger and thirst for the things that Jesus hungers and thirsts for, that he wants for me, righteousness. And the Beatitudes describe what Jesus wants for me, right? Uh, you know, one of the things he wants for me is righteousness. And so they answer two very important questions, questions that we all have. What does Jesus want from me? If I'm going to follow Christ, what does he expect from me? And then what does he want for me in my life? What does he want for me? And I guarantee you, one of the things that he wants for you is righteousness. He wants to make you righteous. And that begins with having a hunger for righteousness, there are 820 million, I checked this number this week, 820 million people around the world who don't have enough to eat, um, who are wondering where their next meal will come from. Uh, that concept's foreign to most of us, but there are people out there who, who know hunger. Most of us think hunger is that feeling we get right about now when it's getting close to time to eat, and it causes us to think, okay, what restaurant am I going to go to this afternoon to eat lunch? Or it's that, that, that feeling that drives us to maybe go through the McDonald's drive through even though we ate lunch two hours ago, to get some fries. It's that discomfort that we feel, and we think that's hunger, but that's not true hunger. Uh, true hunger is something that most of us, maybe some of you, some watching, you've experienced, but in my life, I've never experienced true hunger. Uh, really wondering where my next meal would come from. Uh, knowing that it might not happen. That I may have to go without a meal. Unless I did it voluntarily, there are not many meals that I've missed or wondered if I would have to go without. But there are people all over the world who know that feeling, who know what it's like to be hungry. But for those of us who don't, we are at a real disadvantage here. Because we those of us who think that hunger is something we feel right about dinner time, that our stomach growls a little bit, we don't really understand or appreciate the desperation and the urgency of Jesus' words here in verse 6. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, there's a desperation here. To be desperate, to be eager, to seek righteousness with a sense of urgency. We don't really understand the desperation in Jesus' words. Um, and, and, and Proverbs 16, 26 shows us that there are some, some positive things that, that hunger does. To hunger for something. Um, a worker's appetite works for him because his hunger urges him on. If you're really hungry for something, it will motivate you. If you're hungry... And you want food, you need food, or your family's hungry, it will motivate you to keep going, to work harder, to do whatever it takes to get that food. And that's the idea 
that Jesus is communicating here is that, that our hunger for righteousness motivates us to do whatever it takes to put ourselves in a position to receive that righteousness, to achieve that righteousness. Mourning over sin, realizing that you are lost, that you are poor in spirit, being meek, realizing your true condition before God produces, should produce a desire, a passion, an urgency, a hunger to be right with God. And to have righteousness because you've realized that your righteousness is nothing but filthy rags compared to God's standard and what he desires. So what are you hungry for this morning? What am I hungry for this morning? Well, the fourth beatitude, Jesus in it, Jesus tells us what we should hunger for. But what does it really mean? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, first it means we should hunger for Jesus not possessions. Uh, you know, there, there, there's nothing wrong with having things, having possessions. We've, we've talked about that. Um, God chooses to bless us with stuff, and, and I'm thankful for the things that we have. But, but our hunger should be for Christ above all else. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, Jesus says. You know, we, we really, in this country, even the circumstances we're under right now, we should have the market cornered on satisfaction. Because when we think about it, we are affluent compared to the rest of the world. I mean, very few of us, again, have, have really known true hunger, and most of us have everything we want, if not close. We may go without some things, but we have the means to get most of what we desire. And we have choices laid out before us that are as varied as as sand on the ocean, grains of sand. I mean, we've got chosen, uh, choices everywhere. And, and because of that, and because we have the means to get a lot of what we want, you would think that we would be satisfied. So why are there so many people walking around searching for something they don't have with a sense of emptiness? Why are there so many people suffering from depression and who... Just know that there's something missing from their life. That describes a lot of folks that I come into contact with. Um, they, this is not, they have things, they have stuff, but they're still not satisfied. They're not complete. They're not whole. Uh, choices don't equal, and the means to get those things don't equal satisfaction. We are trained in our society to expect to be satisfied. Have it your way. You know, all the slogans. I could go through a ton of advertising slogans. We're trained to be able to expect satisfaction, but then advertisers and marketers uh, stay up nights trying to think of ways to convince us that we don't have what we need, right? Nothing against you if you're a marketer, but, I mean, that's part of the tactic. You want to sell that product. That's what you're paid to do. And part of the strategy, at least with some, is to convince that we don't have everything that we need. That you, you will not be satisfied until you have this or have the newest version of whatever this is. And so that creates a tension in our lives where we expect to be satisfied, but we keep, keep getting fed. You can't be satisfied. You can't be satisfied. You can't be satisfied. So we have this ex expectation that all of our needs will be met and that we'll be satisfied in everything that we do, yet we still feel like our lives are missing something. I mean, it's built into the very fabric of our culture in many ways. And so those of us who should be happy in the world's terms, standards, we're not. 
Now listen, I love freedom as much as the next guy, and I'm grateful for those who died to give me the freedom that I experienced, who sacrificed their lives, sacrificed um, you know, serving our country. In doing so, gave us, provided, and maintained the freedom that we have. I'm thankful that we have the choices that we do. I'm thankful that we live in a country uh, that is as wealthy compared to other countries as we are. But here's the problem. We exercise our freedom to choose expecting that our choices, the choices we make, will satisfy us. The more choices we have, the higher likelihood we think will be satisfied. And that's just not the case. It doesn't work out that way. And there are studies that that show this. There's one guy, Barry Schwartz uh, of Swarthmore College. He he talks about um, how... You know, he studied the, this, this philosophy, but he's experienced it in his life. He said once he, he went shopping for blue jeans. Pretty simple purchase, right? Thought he knew what he wanted. So he goes into the department store. Um, this is when you still shopped in department stores. Now we go online, right? But he, he went to the department store, and he just wanted a, a regular pair of jeans. And then he, he walked up, and he saw all the choices. You had relaxed fit, easy fit. You know, tight fit, I guess. Uh, you had distressed. You had, I mean, all of these choices, all these different, all these different boot cut, regular cut. I mean, button fly, zipper fly, you know, whatever fly. All, all the choices. And he's sitting there, and he's evidently it had been a while since he had shopped for jeans. And he's saying, I just want a regular pair of jeans. You know, what I used to be able to buy. And he, he said he finally landed on easy fit because he felt like if he bought relaxed fit, it was mi- admitting that he needed something to cover up his, his gut. He had gained too much weight. So he settled on easy fit. That was the easiest choice. But, you know, you think about it, the choice is there. The intent is good, isn't it? Different body types, different preferences, comfort. So initially the choice, providing those choices is a service to those that need different types of genes. No two people are shaped the same. But in providing as many choices as they do, what Barry realized is that you come to your choice with, by exercising a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a whole lot of self-doubt when you finally make the choice that you do. And that, that's our lives. There are choices and choices and choices. And, and the choices actually complicate our lives even more many times. And that's exactly what he experienced here. And there are other studies that corroborate this. Endlessly expanded choice, he says, does not bring the perfect life, but merely teases and disappoints, leading to anxiety and depression. So people shop more, they buy more, and they enjoy less. Let's be honest. I mean, don't, don't raise your hand. You don't have to. But have you ever experienced that? You thought, if I get this one more thing, I'll be happy. I'll be content. And there's, listen, I'll, Mandy will tell you, I love my toys as much as the next person. I like my home theater stuff and my little gadgets. And, and I, listen, there's, when, when I first got on eBay, that was dangerous because there's excitement when you hit that, that bid button, right? And then you get it and it's broken and you're, you know, again, you're disappointed, Right. There's excitement around new things. And, and we think that if we get those things, that that excitement will last. But inevitably, we feel left, are left feeling disappointed. And the more we get, the less we enjoy. And the illusion is that given so many choices, we can just... And here, here's, I think, the heart of the problem. 
we've got all these choices, and if I make all my choices, I can arrange my life just the way I want it. I think that's the heart of the issue. It's a control issue, is that I have all these choices. I'm able to get most of what I want, so I can select and choose the things that fit my life perfectly. And by doing so, I've put my life together the way I think it should be. But that flies in the face of surrender, doesn't it? It's contrary to, in many ways, God's design and the biblical perspective on what the Bible teaches on finding satisfaction. It's the, the reversals, the opposites again. The, the least Jesus teaches is the greatest, and vice versa. James 2 3 says, you desire and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight in war, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Maybe, just maybe, if you're feeling dissatisfied this morning, you've got your choices, you're making your choices, you're trying to arrange your life. If you're dissatisfied, maybe... All of us, on some level, we're hungering for the wrong things. Maybe that's part of the problem, that that we're hungering for things, but maybe they're just not the right things. And that's what's fueling Jesus' teaching here. The motivation behind this beatitude is hungering and thirsting for the right things, the things that he wants for us. If I'm in control and I'm making the selections, if if I'm satisfying my whims, whatever those whims are, how can I ever possibly imagine myself as someone who is lucky, blessed, undeserving to receive a receiver at all first, but then blessed, undeserving to receive anything that I have. If I have this picture of being in control of my life and I can pick everything and choose everything and arrange everything, how can I submit to the Lord humbly thanking him for allowing me to have anything at all? There's there's a contradiction that takes place there. In my life, according to Jesus and his teaching, according to the Bible, should be more humility and more about giving than it is receiving. Uh, Holding things loosely. Uh, You know, think about what we're called to be as followers of Christ, following him, serving him, obeying him, but then also investing in others, being a friend. I mean, just my life in, in general, all right? All of our lives, those of us who have relationships, if you're married, being in a marriage, if you have kids, you know, having those, those taking care of your kids, um, your coworkers, your friends, if you're in any relationship at all, each, each relationship that I enter, I'm making a choice, if I do it the way Jesus teaches, to put those people above myself. I mean, there is, I'm giving up my rights. I'm voluntarily setting myself aside for the well-being of the person that I have entered that relationship. I'm serving others. Being a child of God, doing kingdom work, I'm putting uh, the salvation, the the eternal needs of others above my own. That's that's the concept. That's what Jesus is teaching, and that's that's what he did on earth. That's what he modeled for us. And so if if, if I'm going to be the person that God wants me to be, that I'm going to purposefully limit my choices to some degree and put aside my wants. I refuse to fall into that trap of what if 
Or if only, if only I had done this, if only I'd bought this car, if only I'd chosen the Apple over the Microsoft computer, if only I had chosen the relaxed fit over the easy fit jeans or, or whatever. I, I don't have to worry about the what ifs because I'm not consumed with having more and more and more. I'm consumed with serving God and serving others. And I have a proper view of my things and my possessions. I'm, I'm hungering and thirsting for Jesus, not my possessions. If we don't give up our right to satisfaction through choice, we will never discover what God is calling us to do because that involves allowing God to choose for us. If I don't give up, my, I'm going to say that again, if I don't give up my right to choose, then I'm never going to experience, I'm never going to discover all that God's calling me to because in order to do that, I have to allow him to choose for me. I have to recognize that anything that I have in this life is because he's chosen to bless me with it. This is the principle of stewardship, right? I, all of my possessions, my family, everything that I have, I don't own it. I manage it. And that's why we tithe. That's why we give is to say, God, this is all yours. I'm trusting you with all of it, so I'm giving you back a portion, 10% of what you've blessed me with. It's the issue of stewardship. God owns it. I just manage it. Now, I want to illustrate that this morning. Timmy, how are you, bud? I love it that y'all are right here these days. I can just pick on them any time I want to. What is your, did you see that? What is your favorite treat if you get to choose any treat, we go into the Dollar Tree or whatever, what do you usually choose? Sour stuff, particularly what type of sour stuff? Well, I didn't get worms, but I did get sour gummies. You like these too, right? Sour Patch Kids. How many of y'all, your jaw just started hurting right there? You like sour gummies, right? Now, I'm like, much to my wife's, annoyance. I'm the king of treats in our house. Um, I, on Fridays for years, we, we go and we, we do a treat on Friday. When Mandy's working, we go get treats on Friday. Um, and usually, you know, we'll go to somewhere like the Dollar Tree and the kids will get something. And if they get something that I like, what do I usually do before I give it to you? I, I do, I say, say it loud. And what do I call that? The daddy tax, that's right. I didn't prep him. Yeah, I didn't prep him. It's, mom, mom does it too, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. The, how many of you employ the parent tax in your home? Hey, it is our right as parents, right? I bought these. He didn't buy these, so I get a daddy tax, and I'm going to take my daddy tax right now. I bought these for you. I did, because I love you, but also they sounded good, and they fit my illustration this morning. So I'm going to take, let's see, I can't. There's a red one, but Mandy likes the red ones. I'm going to take, I'll just take the orange one. But this is the daddy tax, right? It's good, too. You want one of these? Yeah, you want one, don't you? Yeah. Timmy's over there. He's ready for lunch. He's 12, y'all, and he decided he likes food a lot. The reason we do this, obviously, is because we like it, but there's a principle there. What does it make you think of when I take the daddy tax? Sad thoughts? It reminds you, it should, I paid for this, right? These are mine, and I'm choosing to give them to you. There you go. You've got to share with your brothers and sisters. Y'all don't eat a bunch of candy during church. I'm setting a bad example. Now listen, it's not a tax, but there's, 
there's, there's a, a spiritual principle there too, right? I mean, you know, we do things for our kids. We give things to our kids because we love them. Maybe not sugary, chewy foods. That's probably not an expression of love. Not good for their teeth. But I chose those for him. He didn't know I bought those, but I knew what he likes. Well, God knows not what we, he knows what we like, but not just what we like, he knows what we need. And he chooses to give us not only what we need, but he gives us far more than that, doesn't he? He gives us things that we don't deserve, things that we enjoy, because he loves us and he cares for us. And stewardship is, is understanding that, that, that God owns it all. He just allows us to be managers. And as a manager, I expect some of those to be left after, after <laughs> church, or as the owner, rather. But, but he owns it. We manage it. And it's not a tax that we pay. We, we jokingly say that. I think Daddy Tithe would be sacrilegious. I wouldn't say that. But, but in a way, the principle carries, right? We give him back a portion because he owns it all. He doesn't need it. It's not because we're paying, buying his love or earning his favor. It is recognizing, Lord, this is yours, and you've given it to me, and I, I'm giving up my right to choose. I know you can choose for me better then I can choose for myself. And that's at the heart of what Jesus is talking about here. The first step to hungering and thirsting for righteousness is to set aside and to give up my right to choose what I think I need and, and what I want. It's okay to, to want things. It's okay to enjoy things. But above all, I, want, I should want what God wants. You know, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. It's not give you everything you need. It's he'll give you the desires that you need to have that are good for you. He'll give you his desires. But when we have his desires, we find satisfaction in him providing those desires. When we seek what he wants, the things that he wants us to have, we find satisfaction. You know, Schwartz, the guy that, that was shopping for jeans, he makes the point that this generation is faced with an overload of choices, thousands of choices. We have more choices than any generation before us had previous generations as a result we're under pressure to create an identity for ourselves rather than accept the identity that jesus wants to give us an identity that can only be found in christ jeremiah god told jeremiah this in jeremiah 1 5 i chose you before i formed you in the womb i set you apart before you were born i appointed you a prophet to the nations that is what he told Jeremiah, this is what he tells the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not disaster, but to give you a hope and a future. So, Jeremiah, I've got a plan for you. Nation of Israel, I've got a plan for you. And I've had it since long before you were ever here. And he says this to us in Romans eight twenty nine. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's got a plan for us, and that's to be like Jesus. Not to have all we want, everything we want, but to be like him. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And then Ephesians 2.10, for we are his creation. Created for what purpose? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time. So that we should walk in them. God had a plan for you, for me, long before we were ever born. And his plan, yeah, it includes giving us a lot of things and us enjoying a lot of things, but his plan is for us to be like Christ. The problem is many of us suffer from a spiritual malnutrition. You know, if all I ever gave my kids was 
sour gummies, how healthy would they be? Not very. And, you know, without Mandy, they probably would be a lot less healthy because, again, I'm, I go for, you know, their love's for sale and I'm buying. I'm giving them treats to try to buy it. But it, spiritually speaking, we can feed on junk food all the time and we're going to be unhealthy, lethargic. I mean, we're, we're not going to we're not going to do anything for the kingdom of God, and we're certainly not going to be satisfied. We may be full temporarily, but we're not going to be, have all the nutrients, have everything that we need. We're not going to be healthy spiritually. Money, possessions, power, all of those things, those are temporary, and they will not leave you satisfied. But when we finally get what we're searching for, when we finally get what Jesus wants to provide, we can be full. Maggie Ross says, we feel empty, but feeling has little to do with being empty. Don't we feel empty because maybe we're filling ourselves with the wrong stuff? Jesus has a better plan. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus. Relationship with him, not something, a possession, which leads to the next point. We should hunger for relationship a relationship, not rituals. Okay, you got possessions, you can get lost in hungering for that, but you can also think if I just go through the motions, if I do the right things, I'll be satisfied. If I follow the right rules, I'll be satisfied. And this is where we need to have a proper understanding of righteousness. Jesus is telling us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? What is he talking about? Those who were listening to Jesus, who could, were within earshot of this teaching, they didn't have many choices. Uh, they knew what real hunger was, most of them. And many of them didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. And, and so they, they understood what it meant to hunger and, and, and thirst. This wasn't just a spiritual metaphor for them. He was drawing the conclusion. They understood, appreciated the urgency of these, this phrase. To hunger and thirst was real to them. It was a part of their lives. They, they, it was a reality of their daily existence. They were literally hungry and literally thirsty. So for them, they were looking at, at life um, with, with more urgency and more uncertainty than most of us know. And so they were living in a time where they were waiting for the Messiah. But because of their physical condition, they were looking for immediate relief, many of them, instead of eternal relief. And so for them, the coming of the Messiah meant that all of those temporal needs would be satisfied, that they would, they would have plenty to eat, their enemies would be defeated, their crops would grow, everything would be just great, and they would, they would have all of the material stuff they could possibly think of. Their storehouses would be full, their wine would overflow, all of these things. And there were verses that spoke to this. Isaiah 55.1 kind of reinforced this. At least they thought their temporal ideas. Come everyone, verse 1, who is thirsty, come to the waters, and you without money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. They believed that the messianic kingdom, the coming of the Messiah, would mean immediate um, wealth for them. And also, in Isaiah 25, 6, they believed that the messianic kingdom would look like this in the temporary, in the present. Verse 6, the Lord of hosts will prepare a feast for all the peoples on this mountain, a feast of aged wine, choice meat, finally aged wine. And then verse 9, same chapter, on that day it will be said, look, this is our God, we have waited on him and he has saved us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Now, in the Old Testament, 
And all of those verses are true, by the way. God's going to accomplish all of those things. But in the Old Testament, the, the, the nation of Israel thought the Messiah will come. He'll be the next David. All of our enemies will be defeated. We will have all that we need. And the nation will once again be wealthy. And on top, that immediate victory was not God's plan for salvation. When they thought salvation, they thought saving us from our enemies, our physical enemies, and from our literal hunger and thirst that we have. And that, that's, that's not how Jesus came, but that was their expectation. So right, this, this dream of being rescued from their, their enemies and being wealthy was what they were looking for. More pointedly, righteousness to them meant that they lived to and, and obeyed a strict set of rules, okay? So they're expecting immediate release. They're also thinking, if I'm going to be righteous, I've got to follow these rules, and I've got to be in complete conformity to God's will and do all that I'm supposed to do, a life of holiness, following the laws, doing the right things. It was seen righteousness in specific concrete acts, so you've got this anticipation, you've got this code of conduct. And listen, all of those are things we should do, but to them, that was righteousness. So I need to follow the rules. By the time Matthew's writing his gospel, Matthew 5, righteousness had come to mean something you receive, not something you achieve. So you've got the Old Testament concept of righteousness achieved by things I do. The New Testament, Matthew, writing about righteousness, people listening, thinking, this is something I receive. So which is it? Is it something I receive or is it something I do? Well, I think if we want a proper understanding, let's look at what else Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about righteousness. There are four other uses in the Sermon on the Mount. One of them is in another beatitude, the eighth and final beatitude, verse 10 of Matthew 5. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And so when you take these two things together, hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, here's what you come up with. We are to hunger and thirst after the kind of life that will cause some people to persecute us for our faith. Um, now, what did they expect in the Messiah? They expected immediate victory, all their needs met, everything they wanted. On top again, Jesus is saying, hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 10, persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Those two things don't really match up, do they? I'm going to live the type of life that's going to cause me to be persecuted. Wait a minute, aren't we supposed to be on top again? The nation of Israel, once again, victorious. So it doesn't really match, but righteousness, according to Christ, is a lifestyle that distinguishes us as two true Christians, and as a result, we're not antagonizing, we're not instigating, but it invites persecution. It invites opposition from the world. The second time we see it is in verse 20. For I tell you, unless right, your righteousness, Jesus says, surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, talking about following rules, the Pharisees have built a, a system of religious practices that no one could meet completely. I mean, it was just rules revolved around attendance at the, at the temple. It, it, 
rules and regulations, you know, precepts, traditions, all of these laws added to the laws in Scripture, endless, endless rules, uh, very routine, following the right routine. It was like wearing cheap perfume, okay? It, it may cover up the smell. It may not smell great itself, but it may cover up your smell temporarily. I mean, if you really want to get rid of your smell, you need to take a bath. If you put on cheap perfume, it may cover it up, but it's not really a part of who you are. You can wash it off, can't you? It's temporary. And that the Pharisees' righteousness was like that. It, it was a, an appearance. It looked good, but it wasn't a part of who they were. It wasn't really righteousness. Then the third use, Matthew 6, 1. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of the people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Again, the Pharisees, they love to, to pray in public, pray loud, you know, to pray these, use big words and all of this stuff to draw attention to themselves. They would give their offerings and they would drop their coins in metal buckets so everybody could hear the clang. You know, they, everybody would know they were giving their offering. They did what they did, most of what they did to get praise from men. And Jesus pointed that out. And they were looking for praise and then they thought that God would reward them on top of that. You know, you get the praise from men, and then you get the praise from God. That's a double bonus in their, their book. So they, that, that was, that was their, their method. They thought, hey, you know, if I do the right things and I look good, then I will be good. They looked good, but there was no depth. Again, it's the cheap perfume thing. It didn't, it didn't, cover, it didn't truly fix the problem. It just attempted to cover it up. It wasn't true righteousness. Jesus says, in contrast, true disciples seek a righteousness that does not need to be seen by others, but by God. I mean, others will notice it, but my main motivation is to please him. And then most of us know the last verse by heart. Verse 33 of chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be provided for you. And this verse deals with our priorities in life. You know, it deals with how we should prioritize, what we should value, what we think, or what should be important to us in life. You know, what is it that I'm seeking in life? Is it fame? Is it fortune? Is it a career? Is it advancement? Is it um, a secure future? You know, retirement? Is it uh, a marriage partner? All good things, but is that my main goal? Is that what I think will give me satisfaction in life? The fulfillment of my dreams, maybe, if I have all my dreams come true, will all of that provide me fulfillment? As good as those things are, they aren't the most important things in life. Jesus is saying you should hunger and thirst for more. You know, God's kingdom, God's righteousness, we put that first, he says, Matthew six thirty three. Put that first, and when you do everything else that you need, not everything, not all your wants, not all your greeds, but all your needs will be met. Everything you need will be given, given to you. Seeking his righteousness means letting his word be the standard for my life. Seeking his will, letting his word define who I am, work in and through me to make me who he wants me to be. And if you put all this together, all of these passages, um, in addition to the beatitude from today, verse 6, it tells us very importantly that we should hunger and thirst after a truly Christian lifestyle that changes us from the inside out so that we no longer seek the praise of men. Instead, this hunger causes us to seek God's approval above everything else. 
And if other men are pleased, fine. If they're not, that's fine too, as long as God is pleased and as long as I'm changed from the inside out. So which is it? Is it something I do or something I am? Well, it's kind of both. It's something I am. It's what God makes me that translates into things that I do. It affects everything that I am, who I am and what I do, how I live my life. It's God making me what he wants me to be. Jesus blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that is first and foremost a relationship with Christ. So I'm saved. Again, notice the order of the Beatitudes here. You know, I'm, I'm poor in spirit. I recognize my poverty. I mourn over sin. I humble myself before God. I receive salvation. I receive a relationship with Christ. He changes me from the inside out, and that translates into a life that I live that other people notice. I don't do it for their praise. I do it to please God, but it is seen in the way that I live my life. Relationship, hunger. Jesus is saying hunger and thirst for a relationship with me. That's what he's saying. Psalm 42, 1 tells us, the psalmist says, As a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. We should hunger and thirst for our Savior, for a relationship with him. Jesus didn't say, Blessed are those who are righteous. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because if I'm hungry for Christ, and I want a relationship with him more than anything else, then he will make me what he wants me to be. I don't have to worry about being righteous. He'll make me righteous. It's not the righteousness itself. It's hungering and thirsting for Christ, for him, for more and more of him. And this leads us to our last principle. We should hunger for fulfillment, not emptiness. Things that will fulfill us, that will make us whole, satisfied, And and that final part of the verse, there's a promise there. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. If you hunger and thirst for me, Jesus says, you'll find satisfaction. You'll find fulfillment. What will we be filled with? Food? No. Not necessarily. Money? No. A long life? Maybe, maybe not. But he doesn't promise that. Promotion? No. Happiness? No. Didn't say always be happy. A perfect family? No. A trouble-free life? Nope. He promises the opposite, actually. Go, go fast forward again. Verse 10, persecution. So what will we be filled with? We'll be filled with righteousness. Righteousness according to what he says is righteous. It's something that God wants to give us. You know, a lot of us are searching for things and we don't find fulfillment because we're not hungry for the right things. We're not hungry for righteousness. God wants to give it to us. We're just not hungry for it. And he says, you'll be blessed if you are hungry for righteousness. And so what will my life look like? If I, if I really hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says we'll be filled, what will it look like? What does God want me to, to have? Well, there's some things that he wants to give you. If you want it, you can have a closer walk with God. He wants to give you that. If you want it, you can have a better marriage. Not a perfect marriage, but you can have a better marriage if it's modeled after God's design for marriage and you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can grow spiritually if you want to grow spiritually. God wants you to grow spiritually. He wants you to become spiritually mature. If you want it, you can be a man or a woman of God. Or a student or a child of God. If you want it, you can, you can have those things. God wants you to have that. 
If you want it, you can change deeply ingrained sinful habits. If you submit to the Lord, confess those things. If you hunger after righteousness, he'll transform you from the inside out. You can get rid of those things. If you want it, you can break destructive behaviors. Destructive to yourself, destructive to other people. God will change you. When you hunger and thirst after righteousness, when you want what God wants more than anything else, he wants to give it to you. But the key there is wanting what God wants. Not what I want, but what God wants. But when you do those things, God wants to give those things to you. And all of this begins with answering a simple invitation. If you look again, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, come to me. That's the invitation. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is hungering and thirsting for a relationship with Christ. Answering that invitation, Jesus says, come to me. Jesus doesn't say, come and join a church. He doesn't say, you know, come and give all of your money. He doesn't say, come and do a bunch of rituals. He doesn't even say, come get baptized. He instructs us to do that, but that's not the primary invitation. The primary invitation, Jesus says, is come to me. All of those other things are good and important. Being a part of a church family, vitally important. If you're going to fulfill God's purpose for your life, getting baptized is vitally important. An outward display of what Jesus has done on the inside. It's how we identify with the body of Christ. Giving your tithes and offerings, vitally important. Living the right way, doing the right things, vitally important as a child of God. But you can't do those things unless you accept the invitation, come to me. You've got to accept Christ. That's the first step. Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst for me, I will fill you. If you're hungry, you can come and feed on the bread of life. If you are thirsty, you can come and drink the water of life. If you're weary and burdened, Jesus says, you can come and find rest and relief in me. If you are guilty, you can come and find forgiveness and healing. And if you are far from God, you can come home and find love and security and closeness with God. Pascal, the French philosopher, said that there's a God-shaped vacuum in all of us. You've heard that. Nature doesn't like a vacuum. When there's a vacuum, if we leave it, a vacuum craves, craves to be filled. And what will happen with us is that if we don't fill that God-shaped vacuum with God himself, we will fill it with something else, with anything and everything we can get our hands on. But the problem is, is that we do all of that and we are left feeling empty, wanting more, feeling like something's missing because something is missing because nothing will fill that void like God himself. We're trapped in an endless search for fulfillment. And Jesus says, come to me. St. Augustine said, oh God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Jesus says, come to me and you can find rest. I'll give you rest. You'll never be happy until you put God first in your life and put him in the center of your life and everything that you do until you allow him to fill that void that only he can fill. You can never be full until you find satisfaction in Christ alone. But here's the good news. In the kingdom of God, Things, good things begin with a hunger. You know, we, we naturally want to know our creator. We were built for relationship with him. 
to know him, to be known by him. And we hunger for him, a seeking heart. He, he puts within us the desire to know him. And then he, he makes a way for us to know him through Christ. If you're tired of the life that you've been living, there's an answer. It's to come to Christ and accept him. Fresh start. There's a story. A mom, there was an earthquake in Soviet Armenia years ago. Devastating. The worst one they had known, I believe, in, in the history of, of that country to that point. And um, it was a mom and her daughter, a lady by the name of Susanna and her daughter, Guyani were over at, at Susanna's sister-in-law's house trying on a dress. The earthquake hit. The apartment complex they were in crumbled to the ground. Susanna and her four-year-old daughter were trapped beneath the rubble, beneath the wreckage of this apartment building. Um, Susanna couldn't even stand up. She could just crawl around in this little area they were in. Uh, it was freezing cold. Um, Susanna had some clothes on, not much, but took those off and, and used it to make a bed and to cover her daughter. She found a... Um, a jar of, I believe it was blackberry jam, something like that, just a jar of, of jam, and, and gave it to her daughter a little bit at a time. It lasted for two days. She, she rationed it out. They were there trapped underneath that rubble for a total of eight days um, before they were rescued. And the jam ran out. Her daughter begins to cry. I'm thirsty. Mommy, I'm thirsty. Now, if you're mom, what do you do? There's no water. You've used all the food that you have. There's nothing left. But she remembered, and this is a little bit gory, but bear with me. She remembered she had seen a special where a guy, two guys were trapped in the Arctic. And one guy, they didn't have anything to drink. And so one guy pierced his finger and gave the other guy his blood to keep him alive. The other guy was injured. He was hurt. And he couldn't get anything for himself. They didn't have any food. They didn't have any water, a clean water at least. And so they, he, he, he basically, not basically, he fed him his blood for, for days and they stayed alive. So she remembered, hey, Ma, the mom remembered. Susanna says, I don't have water, but I've got my blood. So for the next, you know, six days, she, whenever her daughter would say, mommy, I'm thirsty, she would take something sharp and she would pierce her finger and she would give her blood to her daughter. And that's what kept her alive for those eight days. After the jam ran out, that's all she had. She said, Mommy, I'm thirsty. Her mom said, I remember I've got my blood. I pierced, the finger was pierced, the blood was spilt, the daughter survived. How many of us are hungry and thirsty and we can't find satisfaction? We cry out to God and say, God, I'm thirsty. I'm starving. I'm thirsty. And Jesus says, Here's my blood. His hand is pierced, the blood is spilled. And for those of us who receive it, we find life. We find satisfaction. Only through Christ can you find that. Beneath the wreckage of the world, the rubble, God's hands were pierced, his side was split open, his blood was spilled, salvation was provided. If you're hungry and you're thirsty today, not talking about food, physical food, if you can't find what you're looking for, if you're left with a feeling of emptiness and nothing you've found in this life can fill that void, Jesus says, hunger and thirst for me and I will give you satisfaction. Not everything you want, but everything you need. The only place you'll find satisfaction, I guarantee you, the only place you'll find satisfaction is through a relationship with Christ. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be filled. You can find fulfillment in Jesus Christ and him alone. If you're hungry and thirsty, be filled by him. This is the promise of God to a hungry and thirsty nation. This is a promise of God to souls who are thirsty and desperate and looking to the future, not knowing what the future holds, wondering how all their needs are going to be met, wondering how everything's going to work out. The promise of God is, I may not tell you how everything's going to work out, and everything may not work out the way you think it should, but if you'll hunger and thirst for me, you'll be satisfied. You'll be filled. You won't need anything because you'll have all you need in Jesus. And that's the truth of Scripture. It's the truth of this beatitude. It's the truth of Jesus' teaching. We have all we need in Jesus Christ. Everything we will ever need, we can find in him. So what are you hungry for today? What are you looking for? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? You can find satisfaction in Jesus Christ. If you'll look to him, accept the salvation that only he can provide. Let's spend a few moments in prayer. And I encourage you, if you're hungry, cry out to God. That's a cry that he wants to answer. He will provide you with himself. He will fill you with all that you need. If you know Jesus, are you still trying to fill your life with things that, that, are, that just aren't important in an eternal perspective in the grand scheme of God's kingdom? Are you still trying to find satisfaction in, in choosing what you want and arranging your life the way that you want it to be? God says, submit, give up your right to choose and let me choose for you, for all of us. There's an application here. Daily surrender that begins with surrendering my life to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and recognize that to, in order to achieve the satisfaction that you want to give us, we have to first recognize our need for forgiveness and our, admit our need to you and accept the salvation that only comes through your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, through your death, your burial, your resurrection, believing that that is the only way we can be free from sin, that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. And Lord, if we cry out to you and ask for forgiveness, believe in our hearts that you were raised from the dead, that you died for our sins and were raised from the dead, that we can be saved. And I pray that if there's somebody here today or watching, worshiping from home, and that's them, and they are in, in need of salvation, that they would cry out to you right now where they are, and invite you into their lives to be forgiven. Ask for your forgiveness, the forgiveness that only you can give. Ask for forgiveness of their sins and receive the gift of salvation that only you can provide. For those of us who know you, God, what are we hungry for? What are we spending our lives pursuing? Lord, are we saying that we have all we need in you, yet continuing to try to fill our lives with other things? trying to find satisfaction in temporary things, or are we truly seeking your kingdom first and your righteousness? Are we hungering daily for a relationship with you and growing in that relationship with you? Are we finding our satisfaction in you? And if not, what needs to change? How do we need to submit? What do we need to let go of? Could be good, could be bad. Maybe sin that needs to be confessed. It may be something that's good and that, good that we're just trying to keep control of, that we need to surrender to you. Well, whatever you ask us to do, I pray that our lives would be described by a hunger and a thirst for you. That everything that we do would be built around our pursuit of knowing you more. 
being known by you, growing in your word, growing in you, becoming more like you. Because if we want what you want, if we seek your righteousness, if we seek a relationship with you, that's a need, that's a desire that you want to satisfy. Lord, may we find our satisfaction in you and in you alone. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.